Father, what a privilege it is to be here with fellow Christians who love you and want to serve you. Lord, we want to honor you today like we do every Sunday. We want to worship you and praise you and your Son. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Open our hearts and our minds. Help us to receive a message from your word and help us to live it through the week. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you very much, Steve. Here's a term for you. You may not be familiar with it. Researchers have been using it on a pretty regular basis here recently. And when I say recently, I mean the, the last 10 years or so. Take a look at this. The hedonic treadmill. How many of you are familiar with that term? Well, that's, that's a giant zero, so this could be a tough go this morning. It's also known as the hedonic adaptation. Maybe that one rings a, a little truer for you. Anybody? Nobody. Okay. You may not be familiar with the term, but guaranteed you are familiar with the concept that researchers are attaching to this term. For the most part, here's what they're saying. Every person, no matter who you are, has a baseline of emotions that you always return to. No matter what, there is a baseline of emotions that you always return to. Here's a little more insight from the researchers themselves. The idea is that no matter how good or bad something makes us feel, most of the time we drift back to where we started emotionally. One often cited study famously showed that despite their initial euphoria, lottery winners were no happier than non-winners 18 months later. The same tendency to return to baseline has been shown to occur after marriage, voluntary job changes and promotions, the kinds of things we usually expect to change our happiness and well-being for the better in a permanent way. Now, those same researchers would go on to tell us that given this list of things that we're looking at, marriage, voluntary job changes, promotions, kinds of things we usually expect to change our happiness and well-being for the better in a permanent way, only last for a little while. For the most part, they say that that is true because each one of those experiences, marriage, job change, so on, they provide a certain level of newness in our life. But the newness can only be sustained so long. As that sense of newness wears off, we lose the euphoria attached to it, and we return to our baseline emotions, the hedonic treadmill. It just seems to always spin that way. Even when something becomes qualified or quantified in our life as a new normal, the same pattern continues to exist. Look at what they say. Over time, there are fewer positive events to experience, even with a new normal. With fewer positive events and thus fewer positive emotions, excitement, pride, happiness, your newfound well-being can't be sustained. And so we return. We return on the hedonic treadmill to the baseline emotions. That is part of the reason that we find in culture People constantly running, the treadmill effect, running to find something new, to find something more. We are trying as hard as we can to recapture that euphoric sense. We're trying as hard as we can to break the treadmill, to break the pattern, and get to a place where we're living the way we believe we should live. The problem is, with every step we take, the newness will eventually wear off. Sometimes it takes a little longer than others, 
but eventually it wears off. Over the course of the last three decades, I have watched that happen not only in culture and society and in people's lives, but I have watched it happen in their faith. The hedonic treadmill, the hedonic adaptation actually exists even within our faith, within our spiritual walk. A person will come to know Jesus, and man, they will be euphoric because of the change that he brings into their lives. We'll take a close look at what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be sanctified, what it means to be purified of our past sins. We'll look closely at what it means to have hope that we're going to not only be forgiven of our sins, but we will be able to live forever in the presence of the Lord. And that is a euphoria that cannot be touched. But over time, over time, that euphoria begins to wane. That initial feeling that people had when they first came to Christ, boy, they want it. They want it. They want to hold on to it. And so they'll get on a spiritual-like treadmill, trying as hard as they can to recreate that initial feeling. And for some people, it just never comes back. For some people, they never are able to recapture it. And so they return not only to their baseline emotions, but sadly to their initial way of living. Jesus would actually address that to an entire church in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible with you, open to Revelation chapter 2 with me. Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation. If you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, these words are in red. Jesus is the one who says this. The Apostle John records it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Now, for the most part, what Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus is simply what these researchers have discovered. You were living up here with me, but you have, because of the hedonic treadmill, you've forsaken your first love. You are only serving me out of obedience. That's the only reason you're still here. That love relationship that we had, it seems to have disappeared. Get it back, Jesus is saying. Get it back. And that is entirely possible. That's the cool thing about Jesus. As we get into a relationship with him and, and we dig deeper and deeper into it, we find out that he provides for us the ability to get off the treadmill. He provides for us the ability to change that pattern. And that comes through this idea that we have been looking at since the first of the year called transformation. When Jesus comes into our life and he truly transforms us, we can get off the treadmill. 
Now, I've been showing you five different things from Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to do that for a couple more weeks, but I want you to know as we look at it today, there lies within these five things the ability to break this pattern, to get off the treadmill, and it happens through transformation. Join me again in Colossians 1, will you? Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now here are those five things again. Take a look. We're going to put them right up on the screen. The transformed person is filled with the knowledge of His will. That's number one. Number two. The transformed person is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number three, the transformed person bears fruit in every good work. Number four, the transformed person is strengthened with all power. And number five, the transformed person gives thanks to the Father. Now, I want you to hold on to all five of those things as I show you what these researchers that have really been diving into the hedonic treadmill and the idea of hedonic adaptation, what they have discovered as the means, the antidotal, that's what they call them, the antidotal means of breaking the cycle of the treadmill. What's what they say? There are two things. Here they are. Variety and Gratitude. Variety and gratitude. When we apply those things in our life, a great deal of variety within whatever new thing we're experiencing and in an ongoing sense of gratitude, we can actually break the cycle. Now hold on to variety and gratitude. And Chelsea, let's go back to those five things again. Take a look at this. Buried within these five things are both of those antidotal issues. Gratitude is an easy one to see. It's in number five. The transformed person gives thanks to the Father. We're going to talk about that in a couple of weeks. You want to break the pattern? Gratitude is one of the huge keys to doing that. Variety is found in number three. The transformed person bears fruit in every good work, which means that we simply are changing the way we're living. We're changing the way we're experiencing things. We're changing the way that we are investing in life because of Jesus. And when that happens, we can break the cycle. We can get off the treadmill. And that shouldn't surprise anyone because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, God makes this bold statement. I love this. Highlight this verse in your Bible. Underline this verse in your Bible. Memorize this verse, particularly for those moments where it feels like you're getting back on the treadmill. This verse, the one that we're about to look at, can help you take a step off of it and say, I don't want to do that anymore. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
We don't have to keep doing it the way we used to. Because of Jesus, we don't have to continue in a cycle in life that says, I'm going to experience something new, it's going to make me feel really good, then I'm going to go back to my baseline feeling, and then I'm going to try to chase that feeling again, and then I'm going to go back to my baseline emotions, and then I'm going to try to chase that high again, and then I'm going to go back to my baseline emotions, and it's just going to be this rat race. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, that is gone. The new has come. I have found a new way of living. I have found a new purpose, a new identity. I have chosen to get off the treadmill, and I've done it in Jesus. Now, here's just the cool thing for me as I was studying out this idea of the treadmill, and I've been looking at it for a long time, by the way, so it wasn't just new to me. I've been studying it for a few years now. Here's the thing I love about it. Finally, science is catching up with the Bible. Finally, science is catching up with the Bible. The answer to this has already been laid out for us by God. In Colossians chapter 1, tucked away in those five things are the anecdotal ways to get off the treadmill. Finally, science is catching up to what God said. We're paying attention to it. And that's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to pay attention to it. The first two things on that list of five, here it is again. Take a look at this list one more time. Those first two things develop within us a desire to step off the treadmill. Those first two things get us to a place where we say, I don't want to do this the way I used to. I don't want to keep doing life the way I have always done it. But by the time we get to step number three, we are choosing to get off. Step number three is that physical moment where we say, I am done with that. I am finished with this. I'm going to live in a different way. So take a look at it. We just pulled it out here. The transformed person bears fruit in every good work. That's where we start adding variety to our life so that we stop what we have been doing. I know that I don't have to say this again, but I'm going to. We talked about this just this past week, or just this past Sunday, but let me bring it up to you one more time because I want to make sure that it really sinks in. Good works do not produce salvation. Good works are the product of salvation. Does that make sense? Shake your head yes. If you're struggling with that, boy, I'll stop right here and we'll keep on talking or I'll stick around after church and we'll keep on talking about it. We have to hold on to that truth or we will be lost. Good works do not produce salvation. Good works are the product of salvation. And that should not surprise us at all because Jesus himself would tell us that we need to be bearing fruit in our lives. If we are a believer, we need to bear fruit. I love the terminology that he uses for it. It isn't always a veiled thing in Scripture. In fact, more often than not, it is not veiled at all. But every once in a while, we find this message tucked away in the things that Jesus would teach. Like this in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Turn over there with me. I don't hear a lot of Bibles turning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. I want you to see this for yourself because if you're going to get off the, the treadmill... And you're going to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus and what he has done in your life that you can bear fruit for God in every good work. You need to have the motivation of Scripture behind you to do it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others 
so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, I say that that's veiled. It's only veiled in the first part of it when Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, there it's unveiled, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. If you walk into a room, dark room, I mean just pitch black dark room, and you flip the light switch, you will, and rightly so, expect the light to come on. But if the light doesn't come on, you will naturally assume that there is something wrong, and you should. It is illogical for us to walk into a pitch black, cold, dark room, flip the light switch, have nothing happen, yet convince ourselves that the light is on. That is irrational. It is illogical. It doesn't work that way. When a person comes to know Jesus, the same thing happens. That's what he's teaching us in Matthew chapter 5. Let your light shine before men. When Jesus brings, and he is the light of the world, when he brings light into the midst of darkness, and he does that every time he comes into a person's life who has been walking in the darkness, which we all were before him, when Jesus comes into our lives, the light comes on. The light comes on, and there should be a difference. That light should be shining. That light should be visible. It is illogical and irrational for us to believe that if we are standing in the presence of a person who is claiming Christ, yet all we see is pitch darkness, it is illogical and irrational for us to believe that Jesus has come into their life, that they have allowed him to come in. If the light is never shining, If the light is never visible, then there is good reason to question the relationship. Now, I know that sounds contrary to what we have heard, and by all means, the Bible would tell us it's not our place to judge people unto salvation, but when a person claims Christianity, when they claim Christ, there should be visible signs of that relationship. The light should be on. Remember a few weeks ago, I told you that Throughout the course of this series, I was going to say some harsh things. I was going to say some difficult things. As your pastor, it's not just my job to build you up and make you feel good and love on you. Sometimes it's my job to say some things to you that step on your toes and make you say, whoa, is that right? And this is one of those times. If the light isn't shining, if there is nothing but darkness around you, it is a natural question a right question, a logical question, a rational question. Has the light come on? If so, why is there still darkness? Why is it still this way? Well, like we've already said, for some people, it's because of the hedonic treadmill. The light was shining for a while, but then they returned to their baseline emotions, and they went back into a former way of living, a way before Christ. But according to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus would tell us, let your light shine before men so that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the whole reason. Our good works aren't about us. Our good works are about our Father in heaven, helping other people see the one that has changed us. It's about shining a light on who Jesus is. It's about shining a light on the relationship that we have with God, not about building ourselves up. But the truth of the matter is, 
Bible teaches, Jesus teaches us, that we are to bear fruit, that we are to be involved in good works. Now, I want to show you a little more of the depth of teaching on this, so go with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verse 46. John chapter 12, verse 46. Well, we'll back up to verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. What Jesus is teaching in John chapter 12 is that when he came into our life, he brought a light into us. And that light, by nature, has a response. Fruit should grow from it. Good fruit should grow from it. Now, you may remember when you were in biology in high school, and some of you are in high school biology right now, so you probably have just dealt with this recently, or if you haven't, you will in the spring. There is a process, carries a big word with it, but really it isn't that, that daunting once we boil it all down. That, that word is right here. It's the word photosynthesis. Photosynthesis just reminds us that we need light in order for things to grow. Here's the scientific definition of it. The process of photosynthesis occurs when green plants use the energy of light to convert carbon dioxide, CO2, and water, H2O, into carbohydrates, which is energy. We take the energy from the sun, S-U-N, and it gets translated into green plants to provide the energy necessary to grow and eventually bear fruit. That's God's design. Now, it isn't just God's design for plants and trees, flora and fauna. The same thing is true for us. Don't you just love how God illustrates his points in all kinds of subtle ways around us? There is a spiritual photosynthesis that happens in the life of a believer. When Jesus comes into our life, he brings the light of the sun, S-O-N, to us that creates an energy within us that is designed to bear fruit. Good works. We're designed that way. Christianity is designed that way. Spiritual photosynthesis is a real thing. When that energy comes into us, when that light shines within us, boy, we ought to start growing and we ought to start bearing and producing fruit. That's just the way it's supposed to work. And my friends, when you are doing that, when you are producing fruit, you are changing the way you are living because now you're living for God. You have changed your desires, your goals, your objectives, everything about you. You have stepped off the treadmill. You have stepped off the treadmill. 
And now, because I'm bearing fruit and I'm looking for more fruit to bear, I don't ever have to get back on it because every time I find myself in a position where I am bearing fruit, spiritual fruit, that is glorifying God the Father, I'm able to step back and say, I am in the privileged place of being able to serve my God and whatever it is that He asks of me, I am thrilled to do. And as long as there is fruit that's being produced, it is all good. And I don't have to get back on the treadmill. Isn't that cool? That is just great news, that God uses us that way. There are other places in Scripture that teach this very thing, like Matthew chapter 3, verse 8. We've already talked about this passage. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The fruit that you bear in your life really should be in match step with what Jesus has done for you. The light that is shining in your life and around you should be a direct reflection of what Jesus has done for you. That's spiritual photosynthesis. There's even a place like this or places like this in Ephesians chapter 10 or 2. Sorry, there is no chapter 10. Chapter 2 verse 10 in the book of Ephesians where Paul writes, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, here it is, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And even James, the half-brother of Jesus, would teach this tough thing. Faith without works is dead. It is dead. The light has gone off. So be careful that you don't find yourself in that situation. Be careful that that's never the defining aspect of you, but rather the light that has come into your life is continually producing fruit because that's how God designed us. That's what God wants from us. And it is, it is amazing how the kingdom of God comes together and makes that light grow brighter and brighter and brighter all the time. That's the church the body of Christ, and it's a beautiful thing when it is operating the way it is supposed to. When we really dive into Scripture, we find examples of how this works. And I want to share a couple with you this morning just so we can grab hold of some ideas of what that fruit looks like because otherwise this can be really frustrating. I try to do certain things and it doesn't work or I'm not sure that I can bear fruit the way somebody else can bear fruit. Well, my friend, your fruit isn't supposed to look like somebody else's fruit. That's the creativity of God. Your fruit is your fruit. Don't compare your fruit to somebody else's fruit. You just choose to bear the fruit that God created you to bear. And don't get caught in that trap, that treadmill of saying, if my fruit isn't as good or as luscious or as beautiful as somebody else's fruit, then I don't want to bear any fruit at all. It's a horrible trap, and the devil will pull us back into it. So let me show you a couple examples in Scripture that help us see how this is supposed to work. The first one's going to be a little bit difficult to understand, and you will, you'll see why very quickly. Let's go to the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verse 1. <coughs> On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This is the first miracle that Jesus ever performed and it is really intriguing when you get into the miracle itself. Why was this the first miracle? Why wasn't the first miracle Jesus going into a hospital and raising everybody that had died from the dead and healing everybody that was on the the verge of death, healing them and sending them out? Why wasn't his first miracle at a leper colony where he went in and touched everybody and healed them? Why was his first miracle like this? Well, we really have no answer for that, but there is a lot for us to learn. There is a lot for us to grab hold of. First and foremost is this, just because Jesus is the one who performed this miracle doesn't mean that there isn't something for you in it. So don't just write this one off because Jesus is the one who performed the miracle who was bearing fruit. Don't do that because you have to look at how he did it. And when you do, you can begin to see how you fit within this story. Did you catch what Jesus did? He just met a need. That's all it was. He just met a need. Now, a miracle is something that is done supernaturally that could not be done otherwise. That's a miracle. And certainly that's what this was. It was a miracle, but it was a need meeting miracle. This poor father of the groom, I mean, he was mortifyingly embarrassed that he had run out of wine. And, and in Israel and the Jewish culture, there's, there's few offenses worse than that. So Mary said, Jesus, step in. And Jesus said, woman, you caught all that. Why are you involving me in this? And, and Mary says, just do it. And so Jesus did, and he did it supernaturally. But it was a very small need in the overall scheme of things. Remember, he didn't go to the hospital, the leper colony. He was at a wedding, and somebody needed something done, and he met the need. Now, when you shrink that down, here's what you can realize. God can work miracles through you as well. He can do supernatural things in other people's lives, things that could not be done otherwise by sending you to them. Jesus was the only one who could do this. But maybe you have a hammer and you can meet a need for somebody and bear fruit with it. Or a wrench. Or a sewing machine. Or skills with a computer that become supernatural to the person that does not have those skills. Just by choosing to meet needs. Now, it may not be that that was a God-ordained miracle, but that was God using His church to meet a need for somebody. And for the person on the receiving end of it that doesn't have the ability to do it on their own, you are their miracle. Bear fruit. Bear fruit in accordance with what God has given you. Bear fruit and let the light shine. 
That's all this story was. That's all this account in Scripture is showing us. Jesus did something that only he could do that became a miracle for those that received it. Now add to that this little, little sidebar. And you do your best. Because that's bearing fruit for God. When you do your best. When you pour excellence into it. Because Jesus made it the best wine of the feast. You do your best. So there's one place that we can see it. Here's another in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, verse 36. I want you to listen very critically. Guys that I pray with, we went through this this morning. I want you to listen very critically as well and ask yourself, who is the main character in this passage? Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon a tanner. Now, like I said, I want you to ask yourself, who was the, the main character within that account? Most people on the surface would look at that and say it was Peter. And maybe that's the case. Other people would look at it and say that Tabitha, or also called Dorcas, was the main character within that passage. And that may very well be. And maybe it is both of them. But for me, and this is just Phil's opinion, as I look at this subjectively, I believe that it's Tabitha. Because in chapter 10, Peter's going to have his moment where God is going to really use him. Because you see, in Acts chapter 10, Peter will preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And the, the church will spread into a whole new arena. As I read chapter 9, I see Peter coming into the area in Joppa and doing what he does and then just kind of stepping back. It was never about him. It was about doing something that God led him to do. And that's, that's what he did. I believe that Tabitha is the main character within this account because the Bible would tell us that she was full of good works and charity. The widows would come to Peter and say, look at these garments that, that she made for us. Now that statement for us has really had scholars scratching their head for a long time. Does that mean that Tabitha made these for the widows for them to wear or does it mean that she made them for them to sell? the majority of scholars would say that she made those for them to sell because they needed a job. These widows needed to support themselves. So Tabitha had the ability to help them. So she made these garments. They opened a shop. She was the seamstress. They sold them and they were able to support themselves and stay out of the seedier sides of life. So now Peter's there and he sees what they're saying and the Lord leads him to do what he does. And Dorcas comes back to life, and the Bible says many in Joppa believed. Was it because of what Peter did, or was it because of Dorcas's faith and her influence? 
I think it's Dorcas because she made clothes. She let her light shine for all those widows and within her community. And she knew what it meant to bear fruit. Her life was transformed and other people's were too because of her. Same thing happened when Jesus did what he did at the wedding. The disciples believed. When we bear good fruit, people believe. When we bear fruit through good works, God leads other people to salvation and the light begins to shine for them too. You just have to do it. And you might think, gosh, you look at Jesus' account or you look at what happened in Acts chapter 9. Those are huge things. Those are huge things. Well, look at Dorcas. That was a small thing, her using her gifts. That was a small thing. God designed his kingdom to grow through small things. I know that because of passages like this in the Gospel of Matthew. We're almost done. Just hang with me here. Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 31. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. Do you see how that starts? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. God designed it that way. God didn't design his kingdom to grow from huge things. Certainly from the cross, that was big. Resurrection, that is huge. But after that, as person after person has become a believer, God said, I'm just going to bring their gifts together. And those gifts, some of them are as small as a mustard seed. But when they are planted and they are cultivated, they become big. They grow towards the heavens, become like a tree. And if I have an entire field of trees, everyone's going to see it. So your gifts, your abilities, your talents... Your ability to do good works and bear fruit for the kingdom may seem small to you, but they are never small to God. You use them. The fruit that comes out of your life, God uses to shine light in other people's lives. You bear good fruit. The transformed life does that. The beautiful part about getting off the treadmill is it isn't just about you. When you get off the treadmill because of Jesus and you bear good fruit in your life and your good works show what he has done for you, you are demonstrating the transformation that has happened in your life in such a way that the light comes on for other people. So let the light shine. Let the light shine. It is a visible sign of transformation. In fact, I'll just leave you with this. Good works will never, ever produce salvation. They are the product of salvation. If you're wondering about how much transformation has happened in your life, then take a look at the fruit. Ask yourself what you are producing, what you are bearing. Take a hard look at it, sometimes a painful look. And if you need to, you make sure the light is on. Flip the switch, and when that switch brings the light back in, then you allow spiritual photosynthesis to happen, and you bear good fruit. Why don't you stand and pray with me?
Father, that's a, that's a tough message to preach. Because sometimes we all just want to be selfish. We don't want to bear fruit. But you don't give us that option. Sometimes, Father, we, we do fall into the trap of comparing the fruit of our life to others. And as a result of that, we turn the light off. We doubt you. We question you. Father, that's a dangerous place for us to be. We get on the treadmill and, and we choose to stay on it. So, Father, today I'm asking that you get us all off. Every believer. But, Father, I'm also asking the same for those that have yet to surrender their lives to you. Would you get them off the treadmill because when we're, seeking, when we're seeking something in our life, when we are seeking you and we have yet to find you, that treadmill is so real. We're chasing everything else, trying to produce a feeling, an emotion that we can't hold on to. But in you, we find something that changes us and lasts and stays with us forever. So, Father, I'm praying for those that haven't found you yet. I pray they will. And I pray they'll get off the treadmill. But Father, I pray we'll all stay off of it by following this wonderful path that you have given us, bearing good fruit. Help us do it, Lord. Help us do it. In Jesus' name, amen.